It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, the nature and countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. My name is Fergus Collins, and I'm the host of the podcast. And we're nearing the end of our season of 14 episodes that we're calling A Taste of the Countryside. We're celebrating food and drink, and especially farmers and local food producers who work alongside nature and the environment as they go about their business. And in this episode, we're in the Lost Gardens of Heligan in Cornwall. Our own Annabelle Ross met with the gardens founder Tim Smith and filmmaker Peter Bick to talk about cattle. So often livestock are blamed for contributing to climate change and the loss of our wildlife. But Peter believes they might actually hold the key to restoring soil health, biodiversity and helping us tackle the climate crisis. Peter, you are quite far away from home, so why are you in Cornwall? It's gorgeous. It really is gorgeous. This is the first place where my boys have actually said, we could live here. And uh, we, I met Tim through a whole series of events with our film Carbon Nation 10 years ago. And Tim and I were introduced by email right before the pandemic. And so even though Tim was good enough to be in one of my student films over Zoom for the pandemic, we just met in April. I said, hey, I've just finished this film. Do you want to watch episode one? And he then invited, I don't know, 10 people to his house, and we made dinner, and we watched it uh, in April. And then Ramon, the guy who is the ED here at, at Heligan, it's like, we got to make an event out of this. I said, well, let's, why don't we show all four episodes, even though it's not quite finished. I, the thing is that when, when Peter was kind enough to show us the premiere of the very first part of his documentary series, um, the thing he didn't mention was that almost everybody was wiping away tears. It was a brilliant film. And it suggested to us um, a new way of talking about both regenerative farming but also about climate change that had a very human face that wasn't all about the mathematics of carbon and um, what you mustn't do. It was all about how one could live uh, more easily and uh, make the best of uh, living in the natural world. And the f- This is a pre-pre-pre-pre-premiere, isn't it, Peter? So yes. actually 
you haven't even finished it. So Cornwall is is doing the pre-pre-pre-premiere, but it's not actually going to come out to the public until... We don't know. Um, So the project is 10 years old. We haven't said what it's called. Uh, The project is called Roots So Deep, You Can See the Devil Down There. An 84-year-old farmer in Mississippi used that phrase when he was talking about the roots of his crepe myrtle, that the myrtle's roots were so deep. He was wondering, does that help soil? I said, yeah, it absolutely does. And when he said that phrase, three years into the filming, I thought, well, there's the title for the movie. I didn't know what the title was going to be, but that's it. Roots so deep. Roots are the delivery device for food for the microbes in the soil. And when you have one type of root, one type of plant, you're only feeding one group of microbes. Might be a lot of them, but it's just a group. If you have seven plants, then you get this logarithmic expansion of the types of microbes you'll be feeding. And so, you know, here at Helligan, I am sure they have more than seven plants growing in their fields. It's probably more like 50. I don't know the answer, but I'm sure it's high. The Great Plains, the prairies, had 200. And 200 different species of plants. Yeah, and so they're growing at different times of year. They have different root depths. Mm. They have different functions. They attract different bees, different insects, I mean, different birds. And so what we wanted to find out was, are the farmers that we're seeing staying in business, becoming profitable, who are focused on soil health, are they indeed making the land better for nature? Are they making the land better for their pocketbook? And then writ large, are they making the land better for the planet? Are they drawing down more carbon, more greenhouse gas cooling going on than the methane from the animals, which would be warming? And that's the gist of the project, which is, this is a documentary that we're showing today, but the documentary is based on a 10-year-long science project. And I, as a filmmaker who was curious about solutions to climate change, came upon soil as both a huge emitter of carbon Uh, Up to a fifth of the CO2 in the atmosphere is from soil carbon, they say. And it's also the only thing I've seen that could actually draw down carbon profitably, quickly. I'm not a scientist, but I put myself in a position to be a wrangler of scientists. Mm. I think Peter's really uh, uh, extraordinary uh, contribution to this discourse is going to be that it ceases to be about whether you're left-wing hippie, you know, over here, or you're right-wing big ag over here. It is, Mm. here people, this is what the science seems to be saying. You make of it what you will, but this is what it seems to be saying, which I think is a very powerful contribution to our, uh, uh, our dialogue. Because at the moment... Cows are getting quite bad publicity, certainly. Because yep. we're talking about soil up till now, but the cow is a big part of this, um, if, of, of the future of soil health. Yeah, the future as well as the present of soil health. But, and the past. But, and the past, sorry, and yeah. the past. But also, it's, but if, you, if, you read, if you read some of the newspapers, I'm right, aren't I, Tim, in this country? They're saying, oh, no, the cow's got to go. We're, gonna get, we're just going to go to lab-grown meat, and yeah. that's the way forward. That's it. I don't really understand where that leaves the landscape, um, the food chain. I don't really understand. And It'll the soil. the landscape. Mm-hmm. I mean, animal impact, we have a short film called herd impact which easily could have been called animal impact that's a it's a farm family in texas where they're herding 5,000 head of of cattle in the format that we're suggesting is a a much better way of doing it's called amp grazing adaptive multi-paddock grazing and it emulates the way the bison moved across the great plains really the way the bison moved across north america before 1491 and and that before europe showed up um, in mass. 
And what happens is, is the animals only want to eat half of what's there. That's just a natural thing for them. And then they move on. Either there's a wolf after them or they just move on because there's better food over there. Just like, you know, I say this in the movie, you eat asparagus. How much of it do you eat? You don't eat it all. They've chopped off a bunch before you get to the store and you've chopped off some before you cook it. And so it, they eat half and then they stomp the rest that covers the soil. And then they move on. And that rest period that then happens after that is, is how soils got built because then the plants go crazy with photosynthesis and they bring carbon out of the atmosphere, plenty of it, and they put the carbon down into the microbial life in the root system and the roots actually, the microbes themselves are actually dying and they're actually soil. It's called necromass. It's, it's kind of a new idea in soil science. It's about 10 years old and the actual my, uh, carbon from the atmosphere through the roots into the microbes. Microbes do their life. They die. Then the microbes themselves become soil. So you actually build soil from the air through photosynthesis. With the help of the cows. With the help of the cows, which are a proxy for the bison, at least in the North American model. And, and so our soils across the planet are in really bad shape. I've been looking at solutions to climate change for 15 years, looking for solutions to climate change. I'm very worried about climate change. And it's happening much faster than anyone thought, and that's the game. I'm much more worried about our soils. You know, we made a film here in this part of the world. Uh, it's called Time Will Tell, and it's one farmer in Cornwall and one farmer in Devon. And I learned about the River Tamer just going into Plymouth, Right, Plymouth? Mm -hmm. And how much dredging has to happen in Plymouth to keep the bay open. And that's your topsoil. That's golden English topsoil being washed where, away. Where are they putting this, Where are they putting that soil? Oh, who knows? It's probably uh, useless uh, by uh, then. It, yeah, it's probably gone um, uh, toxic by then. This is, but, the, right. but the thing is, the, 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 the great oceans of the world, whether it's the Amazon or the Indus or whatever, they, they are just kicking out topsoil, which is being... Um, eroded from the landscape and the, the trouble is these things it's like what you just said about the bad press for cows you know, I'm an old geezer now, I'm 67 every year or so there's a passion for this is the solution this is the solution and usually those that champion it don't uh, don't understand systems as a whole and I think part of this discourse is about understanding systems it's not about getting rid of all cows or um, uh, farming in a particular way all the time. It is saying that actually uh, nature is a hell of a guide. I'm going to just say, what, the, the thing is, Peter, I've been researching you a little bit, and I know there's this um, this thing about population that we, you know, we don't really know where to fit it in, to, or you, I don't know if you've put anything about it in these films, about population. Mm -hmm. So in the, the, these billions of years and, and the bison and the mm -hmm. soil and the grass and the carbon all working beautifully, but now we have a lot of people who want to eat McDonald's and Burger King. Yep. And they, I, I don't suppose that McDonald's and Burger King will be feeding them grass-fed cows from a beautiful farm in Devon or you Cornwall don't. or Le yeah. I can they afford it so the funding wow. the funding that we got for this project so it's a it's a it's basically a 10 million dollar I know there's a lot of tens it's a 10 million dollar project and McDonald's put in for this research and this part of the project 3.75 million of that we had to match it so they're our largest funder for this research and we don't hide from that we make sure people know that and people say oh McDonald's is just trying to 
greenwash their situation <laughs> and they get a nice film and so some happy farmers and all that stuff. And, and I actually say this in the film, I'm like, well, wait a second, if they're funding research that then has a movie that then is going to get out and it's being seen by millions and millions of people, then we're basically doing research that shows McDonald's has to change their supply chain 100%. So they're not, it's not a really good way of hiding it. Do I think everybody at McDonald's agrees with this type of grazing stuff? No. No, it's probably a small handful. But I want those, that small handful to have power. And, and, and to tell the others. To show that this is good business for their farmers. Their farmers <laughs> are going to go out of business with climate change if they don't shift to a way that focuses on nature and focuses on soil health. Uh, in a world that's very cynical, people will, of course, attack you, Peter, but they'll say, uh, re- regardless of where they can see the conspiracy, they will assume there is one. Right. I think, I think a really tenable position is it is really interesting to put right the farming that takes place to make it as agriculturally, horticulturally, biologically, ecologically sustainable as we can imagine that is, and find the research for it. I think it's also tenable to say it's probably wise, bearing in mind the size of the human population, that we also find uh, diets for ourselves which are not exclusively based um, on livestock. And the, and the danger is you become, I'm a vegan, we're going to get rid of it, or I'm a meat eater, well, I'm going to eat it seven days, uh, 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 seven days a week. Right. And I think the truth is that we're not saying... Well, I'm not saying, I don't know what Peter is, that it isn't interesting to look at artificially produced meat. I'm not saying it isn't. And actually, if you can create artificial meat or uh, uh, bread meat, if you like, uh, what I mean is uh, petri dish meat, Mm. um, that tastes great and it's available to everybody at a price they can afford, that is essentially a great democratic process. And it's not affecting the climate. It's not making the climate worse yeah, or making. Question. Yeah, I. I mean the. But but but. Like, so show me, show me, show me a healthy, productive, regenerative way to grow food. I'm I'm there. Yeah, yeah, sorry, I think that's a really good point. The thing is to be just open. So all I'm saying is, we should be saying, let us farm the world to optimize abundance for all living things on it. Point one. Point two, let us see whether we can level up across the world the ability to have the nutritious food that we need. End of story. Can't believe we're not walking the cows, but it is too hot. Um, you ha- what do you have? You have Devon Ruby Red Devons, is that yeah, right? Ruby Red Devons. Anyway, we sorry. We, we, I, the I rare breeds. They're, you're, you're breeding. You're not eating. You're yeah, no, we do eat. You do, we eat, do them eat as well. We do eat. We we breed and we swap breeds, especially with our pigs. We've got a, 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 a very wide range of rare breed pigs. Um, but at a certain point, you have a surplus, and they would then become just exhibition mm. pets. Mm. We do kill our meat, but we insist that our catering staff uh, and farm staff accompany our creatures to slaughter and we exclusively take over um, the abattoir when it goes there, small local abattoir, because I think there is an enormous amount of resentment or suspicion of eating industrially produced meat 
Also, there's an argument that it doesn't taste as nice because the animals are frightened. Beside which, I think if you're going to be spiritually enriched by the production of a relationship with animals, give them a great life. I mean, that, that's the deal. You know, the deal is maybe, you know, I'm here to hunt you, and when I die, I provide compost, which provides grass and all the rest of it, but you are my prey. But if you're going to be my prey, uh, honour must be shown. I mean, the ancient Saxons had a philosophy called weird you know, um, W-Y-R-R-D, which meant that actually there was a relationship between the hunter and the hunted, so that if you caught a salmon that was going up a river, once you'd eaten the salmon, you buried the bones in the direction that the fish had been going in, and that was the relationship. And I think an awful lot of the movement in terms of not being a meat-eater has been instilled by just a deep-seated revulsion and a sense that spiritually there's something wrong with the mass production of meat that is industrially sorted. How can you look at pig pens that are just... You wouldn't want to eat anything that comes from an animal that's had such a rotten life, would you? And I think this is the difficult thing that we're often asked to defend the indefensible. And those of us who believe that animals should be brilliantly brought up should just keep saying, look, I will eat meat, but I'm going to insist that the meat that we eat, the creatures themselves have had a wholesome life and have had what passes, this is anthropomorphic, of course, but what a happy life before they die. Um, and the moment of death is also not traumatic for them. I think the cult- the whole culture around eating meat is mm-hmm. very interesting. Whenever Now, I, I am a meat eater, but uh, but when I go to, uh, to a restaurant, if I choose meat from the menu, I always ask where it's from. Oh, yeah. And I'm afraid more often than not they don't know, so then I don't eat it. So right. I think that we have to sort of go down that route as well, don't we? Perfect. Is that, you know, yeah, where's no, it from? I mean, not did you go with it to the slaughterhouse, perhaps mm-hmm. might be too much, but, you know, but... but um, Hold it tough. But yeah, and also yeah. eating. There's that other th- other other thing. Eating the whole animal from yeah. tail nose to, to tongue. Tail. Yeah, yeah. N- and nose and, to tail. And using the leather and, yeah. and and like I was talking to. I was in uh, Florence just on vacation with my family, who just walked by, <laughs> and this leather guy or leather shop. He wasn't leather, but he invited us into his workshop in the back, which was really cool. And I said, "Where do you source your leather?" And he said, "Well, it's it's all tanned around here, and I try to use the tanners that are doing things." More sustainably, it's a it's a it's a rough process. And I said, "What about the the leather itself?" He goes, "It's coming from all over Europe." I said, "Yeah, but how are the cows being raised?" And he goes, "I have no idea. He hadn't thought of it." And I said, "There's cows being raised that can make your products bring out more carbon from the atmosphere than the animals actually put up. That exists." And one of our farmers in in Georgia, uh, Will Will Harris, who you really have to meet, by the way, Mr. Tim, Will now sells leather to Timberland. So they're making carbon-negative shoes. Very expensive at this point. But the idea, but they said, we have this supply chain. We're getting everything as, as sustainable as we can, but the leather kills our carbon footprint for our product. And I said, oh, have you thought of the fact that people can produce animals that are actually drawing more carbon out of the air than they're emitting in a greenhouse gas total accounting process? And they're like, what? I want, I want anyone, any ice core scientists that are listening today when there were probably about 100 million bison roaming North America, 1491 and back, I want them to show me the methane spikes in the ice cores that show how bad the animals were for the planet when everything was in balance. And I'm, I'm hypothesizing they're not going to be able to show that yeah, to not, us because it was know. working. Um, methane absolutely comes out of the animals, but they also are part of the system where they're 
they're getting photosynthesis supercharged, which is bringing down enormous amounts of carbon in the way that we're suggesting the grazing is good for the farmer, good for the land, and what we call amp grazing. And so if you've got three greenhouse gases, you've got carbon dioxide, you've got methane, you've got nitrous oxide. Those are the three main gases on a farm system. They all produce warming. Methane is short-lived. It's 10 to 20 years, it's out of here. Carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, those are long-lived. Those are hundreds of years that they're up there. And so the accounting methods have been trying to put them all into one bucket. And there's a guy, Professor Miles Allen, who said, hey, wait a second, we need to account for the short-lived ones and the long-lived ones differently, and then we can start saying what's really happening. And he's, he's saying that methane has been way overcounted in all these reports. So just the math... Why? Why yeah. has it been overcounted? Because they've been counting it as if it exists for 100 oh, yeah. years. When it only <clears throat> as if it stays in the atmosphere, yeah. but it doesn't stay in the atmosphere. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so by a factor of four, he's saying. And so when you get all that added together and you really do it properly, which is what we're doing, trying to do, and what episode four, the reason it's not done yet is because we're just getting that last data of all the greenhouse gases on the farms that we're studying. Um, but the, what it's looking like is that there's so much more carbon coming down with this grazing method that it's, it, it, it balances out, it offsets the methane coming out of the animals by a lot. Okay, but that's with grass-fed cows. That's with holistic management. But if we're talking about factory grazing. cows... And yeah, if we're talking about industrial, different diet, we're not different... talking about industrial. Yeah, yeah so, we're talking about... We can't ignore industrial. Uh, you can't... No. I, so we... Our science... Let's get to the basics of the science is we compared the two. So in the grazing world, we're not taking it past grazing. So we're on the farms. We're comparing conventional, continuous grazing with adaptive, multi-paddock grazing. And we're measuring a whole suite of metrics to see what's the difference. Soil carbon, soil nitrogen, water infiltration, birds, what's going on with the wildlife, bugs, microbial life, um, the animal well-being, the farmer well-being. And that's what the film is about, the scientists coming onto the farms and meeting the farmers, but the film has actually become about the farmers. And we're seeing if our science will actually show that AMP is more productive for all those metrics than conventional, or is it just productive on some of them, not all of them? And the greenhouse gases, that was the last module. We're measuring all three of those greenhouse gases, methane, carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide. And so... Folks have told us that we've got the most comprehensive grazing research project yet. Through our, through our connections with McDonald's, there's research in France, New Zealand, and other countries coming up, and England, that are using our methods of measurement so that we can all talk through the same language when we start adding the data together. So in the U.S., in the southeast, which is where this project takes place, and that's my buddy Todd, Todd Johnson's playing guitar right now on the soundtrack. Oh, yes. Okay. And he's a great story, to, to your point, about a great life for the animals. Um, so in the southeast, it's a long growing season, a lot of rain, right? And so we want to say, okay, we're seeing that it's working there. How's it work in the northern Great Plains with a short growing season, not a lot of rain, and much colder? So it's warm in the southeast, cold in the north, northern Great Plains. So that's where we're really going to say, is this working everywhere? Or is it just working in these specific places? I've seen it work everywhere. Different climates. But let me talk about Todd Johnson, the guitar you just heard from the soundtrack. He's vegan. His wife is vegan. 
They raised three children vegan. He did the music for our film 100,000 Beating Hearts with Will Harris, who I want you to meet. He saw how well the animals were being treated. He went to a farm and found beef that was produced in a way that he was okay with, and he ate meat. He'd been vegan for 20 years. It was the way the animals were being treated that was what pushed him away from eating meat. And that's to your point. Of course we can't ignore industrial agriculture. And the industrial agriculture, the feedlot system, the corn production that feeds the feedlot system, I'm talking North America mostly right now. And the subsidies that is, support the agriculture. Well, it only exists with subsidies. No, 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 it's right. devastating. It's devastating for our ecosystem, right? But the farmers themselves who are raising those animals, they're not evil people. I've found a whole lot of friends in that community, and we don't vote the same, but we understand a love for land. They understand it much more than me, city boy from Louisville, Kentucky, who wasn't raised on a farm. They get it, but what they don't understand yet, and that's the whole point of this project, and we want them to understand, is that there's a way for them to raise their animals that's gonna be better for their land, better for their family, and better for the planet, and they can be heroes. They just don't know it. And they don't know it because they weren't taught that in any agricultural institution. They weren't taught it. So why blame them? I mean, look at what I haven't yet been taught. And you can yell at me for not knowing that I haven't, you know, when am I going to yell at my 10-year-old son because he hasn't, well, I do probably too much, but, he, you know, he doesn't know something? No. And that's what is happening with the farmers. They're being yelled at for not knowing something. But we want to make sure that they know it. And then they make the call. The other thing I wanted to, to with the, with the um, beef steaks, let's say a steak, let's mm-hmm. take a steak. That's also had bad press over the years. It's like, oh, it's going to give you heart ah, disease. Yeah. Well, and actually, there's more nutrition in a, in a beef steak, I think, than in a plate of multicolored vegetables. Well, the cortisones, the chemicals that happen when the animals are so stressed driving 200 miles to an abattoir, and then they're put in a feedlot and they're fed corn way too much than their bodies can handle, the stresses and the acids and all that stuff. You know this stuff better than I do. Yeah, yeah. part of the reason why I'm such a fan of what Peter is doing is it's trying to lay down as objective as is possible a course which says if we were farming as beneficially as we could, but still within a farming system, this is how we might do it. Because the trouble is by, I mean, I'm a big fan, as, as, as I think you know, of George Monbiot, and George, George's new book, Regenesis, is basically a polemic about how we should not be eating meat full stop, just full stop, because the protein return per acre or whatever, when you've got a population of seven and a half billion, is insufficient, and it's just completely uneconomic for the planet and for everything else. Now, when you read a great writer like George, you could actually believe that red was green. You know, he argues very well. The trouble is that when you get to a single-issue debate, unless you've done the work, it's always going to be opinion masquerading as science. And I think that the great thing about this is a bit like the research that's going on in the oceans, which when you discover... I mean, it's a stunningly silly fact, but if we hadn't been whaling from 1854 to the present day, the amount of, of, of crap that the whales would have crapped into the oceans, which is incredibly good for the uh, propagation of, 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 of phytoplankton, uh, would have created enough phytoplankton to have actually meant that we'd have been in equilibrium anyway. 
So we've got to stop. Have taken the carbon? Yes, out of we've the got to stop being like children. True science means let's try and understand our planet and what goes on. Let's not sit on the streets talking about oh it's bad to fly. You're a bad environmentalist. You're on a plane or you've got a car like this or whatever. It is ridiculous on a planetary system, which is at the moment is about one percent out. So I'm told in terms of the balance of carbon um, emission and absorption, we've got to be smart about this and understand that this scientific discourse is about something really important. It's about understanding systems. It's not arguing that my football team's better than yours. It's not like when we had at Eden a project about renewable energy. It was astonishing watching grown, largely men, middle-aged men, arguing, it's all solar, it's all wind, it's all this, and you go for flipping out. It's a system, you know, and you can have geothermal, which is baseload, you can have wind, you can have solar, you can do the rest of it, and then actually you can have independence. And this is part one of the foundation stone that I think that Peter is laying in terms of a discourse about man's impact living with the grain of nature on the planet and it's very lazy to say well we you know when at the time of the great plains there were x amount of bison well there's about 10 times more cows now than there ever were bison and there's about he's about to argue he's shaking his head uh, yeah, am i wrong yeah from what i understand you're looking at it's hard to get a number but we know bison roamed uh from coast to coast east to west coast from mexico to canada we know that Sometimes a herd would take five days to walk past people. And when you start putting all that together, you're seeing numbers between 50 and 100 million bison. And right now we have 40 million cattle in, the, in North America. 40 million cattle. So okay. oh, oh, so okay. In which case, I didn't say that. I was wrong about the cattle. But the, po the, but po hey. the point, n nonetheless, is let's put all of those things into the cauldron and see what comes out of it. I think I sometimes think I live in this sort of fantasy world where all a lot of people I meet, we all kind of talk about these things and mm -hmm. we love discussing them and we know about them, but actually it's a tiny, tiny little bubble of people who want to have these discussions and all agree with each other, sort of, pretty right. much agree with each other. But how do we reach more people? Well, making movies is a way to reach more people. And, and I don't think you'll meet a filmmaker that wouldn't want everyone to see their movie. I wouldn't believe a filmmaker who doesn't want that. I want that. I want everyone to see my movie, um, our movie. And, you know, do I want farmers to see it? Of course. Mm. Do I want farmers who are grazing uh, conventionally right now to see it? Absolutely. Um, I want folks who are running companies to see this. I want folks who are thinking about watersheds to see this. Um, you know, watersheds put water down into water treatment plants that then cities have to clean up to actually then have their citizens drink. If the water coming to that water treatment plant is cleaner, the city makes more money. We're talking systems, that's what Tim's talking about. Healthy soils mitigate the impact of flooding. You, it's not going to change the fact that you have a flood, it could change the impact of the flood. And so upstream, in a watershed, if you take a lot of soil and you start treating it the way nature actually wants it to be treated and will respond quickly when you do, it's not a long-term project, it's quick. Nature likes being healthy. And, and then all of a sudden the city has less flood damage, spending less money on water treatment. Maybe people are healthier because the water's not as contaminated with chemicals like glyphosate. 80% of Americans, this came out today in The Guardian, and it was a co-production with uh, another group. 80% of Americans have glyphosate in our urine. 
and um, and a court just said to the EPA, our Environmental Protection Agency, hey, we don't really think you looked at glyphosate properly, so you saying it's not a carcinogen, that's not actually, you didn't do the work. And obviously the World Health Organization has said since 2015 glyphosate's a carcinogen. So glyphosate alone is going to be a more damaging thing to Earth than World War II when people start adding it up much. And so regenerative agriculture gives farmers a way to not have to use that stuff. And it gives them a way to spend less money as they're growing their food and things like that. And so I want farmers to know this stuff. Sorry, it, for farmers, I, I presume it's not, it's not, <clears throat> it's not actually simple. It, it takes time to change your system into a different system. And then maybe they're, they're scared, maybe they're worried about um, money in between times, yep. how to feed their children, and yep. so on. So, they are. That yeah, is. It's, not, it's not like everybody can just suddenly be... No, no, that's absolutely right. But, 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 but what Peter is saying is that if you have a world in which we subsidise agriculture for all sorts of reasons, let's not call it subsidy. Let's call it, if it was healthy, guardianship of the natural world on behalf of all of us, which I think would be a lot more positive. I've actually seen, with my own eyes, a farm in County Meath in Ireland where a gallon of water dropped on one square metre, more than half of that water would actually come off the top and just take sediment and and, and nitrates away. After three years of being treated, three years, just three years, you could put 20 gallons of water and the soil would absorb it and wouldn't wash stuff off the top. And you're just talking about a metre, a square metre. Yeah, I'm just trying to make yes. the, the point, because we can yeah. all imagine a square metre. Just imagine how much that soil is now slowing down the water runoff, which would have taken the sediment into the river, would have taken nitrates into the river. Yeah. Think how, it's actually in a bend of the River Boyne, which is one of the sacred rivers of, of Ireland. That river has become virtually free of all fish life and it's coming back because for 30 miles up the river Boyne there all the farmers are starting to do the same sort of thing and that is really healthy it's it's about making a system work Peter's absolutely quite right we're not trying to say bad farmers the thing is we've always been we've got into siloed thinking and when we actually start to prove that things are healthy but based in the round um, I think we'll then have a much better idea and it's Let's not view it as a threat. Yes, the end of the world, for our world, is a threat. It's an existential threat. But it's also the most exciting thing to be alive today, to actually work, to actually realise that we can understand systems and understanding how they work. It's nothing less than a new green enlightenment. Yeah, I'm Martin Howard, a farmer in the Tamer Valley. Um, I'm Ben Mead, and I farm down near Falmouth. Now, you two uh, have both been in a, in a, in a Peter big film before in the in the Carbon Cowboys um, series, is yeah, that right? Eight years ago. Yeah. Oh, eight years ago. Eight years ago. So, so you are examples of successful cattle mob grazing farmers using the method that Peter Bick is talking about. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, it would be. Yeah, yeah, and probably been doing well. Yeah, when we made the film for me, I was on that road of starting, but but we've been looking at this a lot longer than that. So. 
uh, what are we going back 10, 15 years now we've been looking at this? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah it would be around about that. Yeah, yeah. So you did it at the same time. Did You didn't know each other before, though? Uh, we sort of knew of each other, I think. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a discussion group, Farmers Network, so we were comparing notes and things, and I'd heard a lot about Martin and what he was up to, and he had a lot of knowledge that I didn't have, and, you know, I think I had a bit of knowledge that he, he needed. Yeah. <laughs> so it was yeah. a collaborative. Yeah. Well, well, Ben was ex nuffield see, so you always look up to an ex nuffield So they've travelled the world and learnt how to do it anyway, see. So, yeah. <laughs> so would you recommend it? Of course, of course. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, it goes back to... Uh, farmer for carbon and that's what we're doing so if we want to see everything go forward with production uh, less health reasons uh, what else are the reasons I mean it's good to go back to carbon I mean, it just answers everything it's, we've depleted it you know we've depleted that carbon out and if we want to sort if it is climate change like people saying today is it climate change is it, is it that but it doesn't matter if it's climate change or no if we want to see production go th- forward through farmers with less inputs uh, and as we're seeing as in outer couch at the moment, we're finding the three Fs have just gone through the roof for uh, for uh, cattle farmers anyway, which is fuel, fertilizer, and what's that feed wise, isn't it? So it's just gone through. So we don't use any of it. So it's not uh, yeah. You're you're doing the carbon capture, but I'm also talking about your own welfare, your family, mm. your life, your your you know making an income. It's also helping you with that. Oh yeah, very much so. It's, well, it's living now. I mean, um, yeah, it, it is. Yeah, you've got a life now. It is proper farming now. You're not relying on a product. You're not using any chemicals. You're trying to work out ways you can use that tractor less. And if you could farm, well, for me, if I could just farm or use my quad, that would be happy. How many... Uh, are, are you beef or dairy? All beef. All beef. How, how many... Um, we're, how many heads? Yeah, we're 300, but we're still down, still down at the moment. Our biggest problem, we're organic as well. But I buy in uh, like store cattle, uh, but the biggest problem at the moment is just finding them. And then we've had TBs and IRs, so it's just been a difficult time. And then high prices. There's no point in buying anything at high price. You're not going to make any money out of it. So, um, so you do mob grazing, Martin, but you. How often do you move your herd? Uh, once a day, but probably probably is wrong. Uh, probably not enough, but I do them probably once a day. Uh, once a day isn't enough. Well, probably. I mean, Ben, yeah, no, ben no, will do two or three times yeah. a day. But what I'm trying to do, what I'm what I'm trying to go is, is being able to get the numbers up again. So the biggest mob I've got at the moment is 150 animals, and I don't, I don't see that why that should stop. So for for me as well, where I look across the dairy unit, where there's got that many hundreds of cows are in that for beef animals flowing those systems, is quite unusual. But but um, that, you know I don't see why that can't stop and where I can go to. Did you say you're looking across at a dairy farm? Oh, yeah, got, on your, your neighbour. I've got neighbours both neighbour and dairy dairy units right opposite me. So a big, conventional. Big, conventional, big units. Yeah, big units with a, a lot of cows on. Do you communicate with them? <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> and it goes back to the film with Ben, or, uh, with Peter. Peter said to me, he said, well, what do your name is And all I said was, time will tell. <laughs> and that's what the name of the film was, because of, and time will step tell, isn't it? Where will we'll go? I mean, it's, it, they're starting to struggle for grass now. It's very dry. And, and, and They haven't come to you to say, hey. Well, yeah, yeah, they, they cause I, well, I shouldn't use a word, I suppose, but they come for me for some mycorrhizae. But, and I sort of told him it, it won't work. Uh, because you know microbes is a fungi that we put in with the crops to to increase carbon that we can put in the soils with a growing crop and it won't work because you're using synthetic and you're going to cultivate so it won't work anyway but they was desperate they was, but they only done half a field said you're not going to do all field because you won't see the difference 
So they'd done half the field. But it didn't work because then they went and sprayed it with chick, chickweed anyway. So it's a waste of time. So. <laughs> but it's understanding these things. But it's, it's a bigger, and it's a lack of knowledge, isn't it? It's understanding why you're doing it. And, and probably didn't have the real reasons why, why are you putting it mycorrhizae? And, it's, and why are you doing it? And there's a reason for all of these things why you want to do it. Why do you want to go down the road of mob grazing? What are you going to gain out of it? And I think it's gaining why and what you want to do in it. And unless you know that, you're not going to be able to push forward. Ben, uh, so are you in a similar position to Martin? Or are you, I mean, you, you, how, how many years have you been doing the mob grazing? I probably really sort of kind of started um, messing around with it in about 2008 or something. So it's it, it's been a while. Yeah. So it obviously works if you've been doing it for that long. Well, up to a point. I mean, I used to generate a lot more revenue from previous kind of um, farming and paddock grazing, but I realised that I was actually destroying my soil carbon, so I was eroding my natural capital. So it was kind so you've of... you've got less of an income now. <clears throat> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But I do less work. And um, and it, it is also trying to take the rest of the industry along with you because you don't want high-maintenance cows, you know, big beef animals, which is kind of what the market wants. You have much, much smaller animals. So you, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge, huge journey to go. By having those smaller animals, can you compete with the other farms? I mean, are you able to sell your smaller animals? Well, I, I, I think you can. And, you know, as Martin, has, uh, you know, he's set up his own box scheme for meat and so on. And I'm getting to the age where I'm sort of kind of just being a sort of kind of retired academic and, <laughs> and having a lot of fun doing it and kind of trying to make it work ecologically. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been, a, it's been a tough journey. I, I, I enjoy it far more as a, as a type of farming. And as we've seen with Peter's wonderful films today you know everything that they've, they've said is true but adapting it to the UK is again another battle we have a completely different um, we have a completely different land value system um, and also we have we have a very highly intensive agriculture in this country um, so which generates a lot of income so to suddenly fall off the edge of a precipice um, in terms of your farm income when you've been used to a very high income and you've built up all the necessary equipment that you have to have that income to service is kind of quite a, a steep learning curve and so you have to look at the whole ecological side of it and also the financial side of it and and, and, and and work through that way and it takes a long time and you have to have a lot of confidence in it and you probably have to be you know we were talking a little bit about neighbours and what they think well I think most of my neighbours think that I'm a crank but of course they never ask you what you're actually doing but I can see that I'm building my carbon levels I can see that my cattle are getting fatter and putting on more white as I, as I change the breeding and it's a sort of kind of it's still very much a work in progress and I think you have to be very very careful saying that a mob grazing is going to sort everybody's financial situations out because I don't know how indebted they are. I'm in a position where I inherited a farm with a lot of debt and my first priority was to get rid of that debt and so now I now operate debt free so I don't really have to and I have, don't have a great deal of expenses so I'm in a unique position to do it and, and, and I, I want to put that information out there and you have to engage with other farmers and say look this is what 
what works, but can you make that work within your own financial system? I think that's kind of like really important because, you know, I went to see enough systems out in Australia and New Zealand and other places, and indeed over in Cornwall, we've changed grazing systems, and people are being pushed by consultants to do it, and they're told that this is the right thing. And actually what's happened is that some people can't learn fast enough or they get themselves into a difficult difficult situation so you have to be very careful sort of putting these ideas across to people there's and you know again peter's films are showing that you know there's the, the last film that we saw you know very hair example of uh, harrowing examples of what happens because people are very sort of pig-headed and dogmatic about things so it's you know it's not for everybody but you need help and support to do that and i don't know where that's coming from currently yeah, you've got to have the, you've got to have your um, your ecologically sustainable. You've got to have your financially financially workable, sustainable model, and you've also got to have your emotionally sustainable one. So it's got to work with your relationships as well too. You know, if you've got a wife who absolutely loathes what you're doing, or or your kids absolutely hate it, and they think, oh, dad's out on the farm again, these stinks of cow shit all the time. You know, it's not, it's not great. You know, you have to you have to sort of engage them all, and it's very important to have all of that. The, the trouble is that there is no rules. I mean, we're learning. We're, we're the ones that are doing the research for for where it goes to, and uh, and where 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 we can take this. Can this be possible? Can it not be possible with these intensive amounts of grasses? But no, no, there is problems with it, and it's not straightforward. You always and and you're learning. You're learning all the time with it. And it, the positive things we are that. Yeah, we are finding positives like the amount of grass we're putting in, and and the, how the the end product. What is the end product we're trying to do, and that's produce beef. I don't know if it's going to work for a dairy system, but it's working for our beef. Would you recommend it to 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 others? Yes, I would. I would. But we're recommending it. You've got to have support a family, which I've been very lucky to have support a family to be able to go it. And I think. You're rechanging your mindset, your completely mindset, and changing differently to what you would have been, what you've ever been taught through college or whatever. Um, but it's a positive thing, and I think it's just we've probably seen some of the films today is that it's more time for family. Well, I should have more time, but I don't seem to get time. <laughs> My wife looking at me. What time do you get? <laughs> I'm still moving fences at ten o'clock at night. <laughs> But it's enjoyable fun, you know, fields, fields covered in moss and, uh, you know, what could be more enjoyable but out with the biodiversity there as well. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. That's absolutely fascinating insight from... Not only did we have people talking about the theory of all this farming revolution, but we had the farmers themselves talking about putting it into practice and the highs and lows of that. And well, I'm back in the podcast studio. I'm Fergus. I'm the host of the podcast, but I'm delighted that Annabelle has joined me here to talk about some of that. And those farmers were talking about the people they can't do without. And we can't do without Jack and Hannah who helped make the podcast. Lovely to see you all. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Terrific. Um, ben and Martin, to hear them talk about the things you really need, uh, particularly financial, but the emotional and family stuff, that was quite moving. Well, it's, I think it's a topic that isn't really talked about much, is it? Yeah. That, you know, when you talk about farming, although we do know that farming, we always hear that farming's very hard, don't we? And um, lonely. And lonely and can lead to terrible... A very high suicide rate among yeah. farmers. And so I think going into farming, you've got to really think about who you're going in with. Have you got a supportive family or friends or community around you? Community, which it used to be. But what's so interesting as well with all these documentaries of Peter's is that he's talking to these neighbour farmers a lot in his documentaries. He's, you know, that's the whole point of it. But they haven't actually ever really spoken to each other. But they're next door. And they're both farming. I thought that was a bit heartbreaking, actually, because I've, I mean, I've met a lot of farmers in this series, and you have as well. And we've talked to lots of people over the course of the podcast who are doing new things. When I say new things, some of it's like old wisdom with new techniques. But they're doing all these things, and they kind of get isolated, or their neighbours laugh at them. And actually, they're doing really progressive things. They're making more money than their neighbours. And they are sort of perhaps doing, well, they are doing things more sustainably for the countryside, for the wildlife, for their local communities, preventing flooding and and tackling some of the issues we're facing now with the drought. And yet they're sort of ostracised. And I don't know, could... I don't know why. I think maybe humans, we're quite, diff, we're quite sort of averse to change. When I was watching these documentaries, uh, there was, with the conventional farmers, not that this is, you know, a sweeping statement about conventional farmers, but they were very much in the um, mindset of, well, my grandpappy did it mm. and my pappy did it. These are Americans. And my grand grandpappy did it this way. It worked for them. It's going to work for me. Why would I change? And so there's a kind of emotion around that in itself of I want to do what grandpappy did because I have – it's a creating a kind of nostalgic memory, which isn't necessarily true. Okay. I think it can be quite dangerous to hold on to sort of nostalgic – tradition to the detriment of future generations. Good job we don't do that in Britain. <laughs> we yeah, sorry, the grandpappy or the grandfather. Of course we do in Britain. I know, but... I know. We're the most nostalgic nation in the world, I think. Oh, is that a fact? I would... Is that a factoid? Well, I, I used to be <laughs> in the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> so, so change, I bet Hannah and Jack probably, do you find change quite... They're younger. Probably not, they're young. younger. I think it's interesting the idea of um, farming being difficult. And so you do want to stick to the tried and tested methods because 
if you know it works, why take the risk? It's so true, Hannah. It is so true. And I think it is really hard for them. And it and the risk is quite big. Yeah. It's financial. It's emotional. You might get ostracized, as you were saying, Fergus, mm. you know, and I think it, you've got to be quite a risk taker. Therefore, you have to have people around you yeah. who will support you and say, go on, we're here. I if, think, yeah. I was going to say, I think you, with any change you make, in, no matter what you do, it, it you've got to sort of be confident in yourself or be committed enough to know that people are going to make comments about that change. And I think especially now that there is that sort of divide that if you're going to do something differently, you get comments of like, oh, it was, you, do, you get it easy nowadays. It used to be so much harder In doing it the proper way. Or it, And I think that's a lot A lot of the problem is you've got to know that you're going to get those comments and be able to just sort of go, whatever, I know this way's better. It's hard, isn't it, though, sometimes? And go for it, yeah. And I think you, you get that forever, even if you, you, you can't relate to it in a farming sense of ways. I think, so I guess you, you've even got it with sort of cars now, of electric cars, they say. Yeah. You, you can drive them, but then people go, "Oh, it's, it doesn't. It doesn't sound the same. It's not. They're, they're not as good cars anymore. You've got. You don't. Don't. They can't travel as far. And but you've kind of got to push past all those comments to be able to do something that's actually better for the for future. The future. <laughs> I mean, that's what's so strange. I think. I think there's also that that sense of being tied to the land and the land imbuing your character and mm. that loyalty to the land and what it does to you. That also makes change harder to to embrace perhaps having mm. spoken i mean i said i don't say this from off the top of my head as having spoken to lots of farmers and people who write about farmers that there is a deep connection which non-farmers and people who sort of eat the food at the very end of the chain mm. don't appreciate lots of god it's opened up a lot of uh, a well of things we can talk about mm. i wondered about mob grazing well, that's quite interesting. It's sort of you move your cows around the field as if they were bison in the olden times, or well, not so long ago. But yeah, they made it look very easy as well because they on the films it was just sort of one man on his quad bike pulling along an electric wire on one of those rolls, you know. Mm. So he's just going, and it's just going behind him and he'll put, stick a pole in there, stick a pole in there, and it's like, oh, job done. And it's not actually that simple. He made it look really simple. I read a really amazing book. Uh, called The Omnivore's Dilemma. Have you come across that by Michael Pollan? It's about yes, farming I have. in America. Yeah, 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 and a lot of it is an expose of the sort of domination of big feedlots where thousands upon thousands of cattle are kept in stalls on these prairies. And then the absolute antithesis of what Peter was talking about. And then there was other talk about corn syrup and the domination of corn and its derivatives in American food and, you know, more and more UK food. Anyway, in all this sort of slightly gloomy stuff, there was this great story of a guy who had who farmed cows and chickens. And what he did was he had the, the cows on a field for X amount of time, maybe two days, mm. and they all their dung was there and they, he would move them on. And they give it five days for the flies to come in and lay eggs and for the (laughs) larva to hatch into the dung. So all the cow pats. Then he'd move the chickens in to eat the fly larva. And what the chickens would do, while they were eating the fly larva, they would scratch with their feet, spreading all the cow muck around the field automatically. It was genius. So he was getting loads of free food for the chickens. And the cows were getting fresh grass, but also their dung was fertilizing the field. And this 
process cycled around i don't know how many fields it wasn't a massive farm it was like 100 acres and uh you know his chickens were famous throughout this i want to ask peter about this now because that's really it's cool. a really interesting um way of of doing it and, and and then obviously the chickens created their own you know droppings which which is, is very potent very good isn't it yeah as long as it doesn't get into the rivers it's it's very good yeah it so, needs to, um, yeah okay so but you know it, it was this is this guy's very the, the farmer in this instance was extremely careful about the sort of environmental impacts and had all these very large hedgerows around each field that provided shelter and forage mm. for the cows as well so just incredible story so i just thought that was I've got like, chicken run in my head now <laughs> yeah it's a bit like <laughs> But that's how I'd love to farm. I think that's sort of yeah. brilliant because you're getting so much out of it, but also yeah. putting so much back. And I think um, you know, he said people would drive for 100 miles to come and buy one of his chickens because it was... What, I, what we haven't really talked about is that there is a lot of negativity around cows. Yes, yes. That's, that's a good point. That, um, and that's why I was really pleased to have the opportunity to talk to Peter about this. Because I, I, you know, I did challenge him a couple of times, and I—I I mean, I—I I use the word fart. Methane, and I'm out slightly of cow's embarrassed backside. by it now because yeah. apparently it's more the burping than the farting. Oh, really? Okay. But nobody picked me up on it in the in the interview, and I'm now really embarrassed that I said fart like more than once. Yes, it's a bit uh, pathetic. Now you've done it a couple of times. Here. I've d- done it again. Yeah, 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 but yeah. if I had just carried on with burp, it might I might have been a bit more respected. Yeah. As a podcast presenter, um, <laughs> but it, it, you know, it's it, it's the burps aren't as bad as they've been made out to be either, because they the methane doesn't stay so long in the atmosphere compared to the carbon monoxide and um, you know all the other carbon dioxide pa- and nitrous carbon, oxide. Yeah, those one, are the two. You. Yeah, I I think that we need to. I do think we need to sort of change the story about cows here. That's, and we yeah. don't have to eat them. We don't all have to eat them. I'm totally fine with that. It's, you know, uh, of course. But we need to, first of all, we need to change the way we farm them. And secondly, we need to change the way they are just talked about or or presented to the public because they, it's, they're getting a really hard time. And I don't think it's justified. It's an interesting point because in the, in, in the UK, cows used to be seen on the uplands a lot more than they are now. It's very sheep dominated, the uplands of Britain. I think it was foot and mouth 2001 where cows were definitely taken off the hills and never made it back up there for various reasons. There's probably other reasons involved, but they do a really interesting job. They just graze or browse in a different way um, to sheep, which nibble, nibble, nibble right down to the bottom, whereas cows tear grass and so create a lot of sort of mixed levels of sward, which is good for different types of wildlife. Anyway, that's what we're missing in the uplands, Gosh. a lot of people say. And that might be another sort of role for cows to play in sort of habitat. I know a lot of cows are being introduced into nature, upland nature reserves to create those sort of mosaic of different habitats. But where I live in the Brecon Beacons, there's a lot of quite similar, uh, almost monocultured hilltops, which were, I think, in the past a little bit more varied with vegetation and, and the animals up there. So... Cow, you know, people. A lot of people are afraid of cows. They are, side. yeah. I have friends who I go for walks with, who say I'm not going in that field. Mm. Absolutely not. You guys comfortable with cow, cows? I'm quite trepidatious. Trepidatious. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah. Nice big word. Thanks. Yeah, I like it. Mm. Um, I sort of know in inside me that 
I'm probably fine. But there's that slight anxiety about like, what if what if I behave in a way that is going to provoke them? Or I'm always very careful about making sure we don't go in between them and baby cows. What do you think it comes from, your fear? Where does it stem from? I think it's just from being very little and going on lots of walks and then just being so massive. Mm, and unpredictable. Yeah. Do you think it's like public stories and stuff like that? I think that hasn't I think public, helped them. Yeah. I think when you hear about this stuff like yeah. someone's let a dog off a lead, but it's the cows that are at fox, they started storming towards you. And I, I, I think it's, it's the reason why like sort of spooky places exist, isn't it? Because <laughs> you go there, they tell you about all the... Spooky things that have happened, happened, and then you become you feel spooked. spooky and scared of that place. I guess with cows, you get hurt. You or you, you never really hear good cow stories. I think maybe that's <laughs> but it's always sort apart of, from today. <laughs> it's always sort of a negative towards the cow. Yeah, and watch I think out you, for the cows. You then go into a field, see signs that say, "Beware of the cows." Mm. Don't let your dogs off, and that just adds to that. I mean, oh, they on, really be... have a thing about dogs, cows. Yeah, yeah. They have mm. a massive thing about dogs. I have to say, I don't know if I'd go into a field with a lone bull in it. No, I think that's probably... Uh, Wise. Because it normally does say, beware the bull. I think that... I mean, I don't... I've never actually heard any stories of anyone being charged by I've a bull. I've seen loads. I get, I've had a lot of letters from readers who have had horrible cow... In fact, I have been charged by cows, but I did have my dog with me at the time, and I managed to get over a stile in the nick of time. And that's another long story. Did you pick up the dog and run, or did you turn around and go? I turned around because <laughs> I, I I turned around at one stage because they were coming fast but not charging, but they were yeah they coming, sort of trotting coming fast, mm. and I knew that if I didn't turn around and do sort of make yeah. a, make a stand, yeah, they might just come straight through me. Yeah, and I think the advice or straight is straight over you, straight mm. yeah, they were through over. Yeah. Not Same under. Thing. Oh, that yeah, would be really un- weird no, no, and uncomfortable. No, 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 no. Um, although cool, um, <laughs> but uh, but I think the advice is actually let the dog off with cows um, because they chase the dog. The dog can escape better than you can, and they'll chase the dog. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and the dog the can nip through the hedge. Yeah, whereas, and so we got over the. We broke into a trot, the dog and I, and got over a stile. And I did feel a big sense of relief because yeah. they were just a bit more feral than I was used to. But mostly I'm not bothered by cows. But I think we, we've had lots of letters. And there are deaths, people out in mm. the countryside who get trampled by cows. Some cows are you know, unfamiliar with people. So you do have to kind of judge your, judge your walk. Uh, and I think you know, it's beholden on farmers not to be putting feisty young uh, bullocks. bullocks is the word, yeah, bullocks um, on a foot, public footpath where people might sort of... Actually, a friend of mine it's tricky. who's a farmer in Sussex, beef farmer, he got whacked in the chest by one of his cows and it was he was quite badly damaged. Mm. So even a farmer can have well, vets, 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 big animal vets, it's a terribly dangerous job and constantly being kicked and trampled and... This is just, but it's the same with any animal. I don't, I don't think that's just exclusive to cows. I think cow, just because cows watch are, out for those hedgehogs are, when they come. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think, if they I've, ever decide to invade. Well, I think, I think if, if you go, and there's to, dung beetles. Any, yeah, but like if a sheep, <laughs> if, if if a load of sheep start running towards you, they're still going to cause damage. But I, I don't think mm. you're as wary because they're not because they're not beefy, yeah. beefy <laughs> animals. <laughs> But, and chickens, I guess. If you annoy a load of chickens, pet, you get pet. <laughs> I do. geese are quite scary, right? Geese. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. They can be really intimidating. Yeah. No, you're right. I was just thinking about the uh, beetles, but 
Oh, I have a chicken story. If anyone oh, likes gosh. to hear a chicken story. Oh, yeah. gosh. Oh, no. okay. we, 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 we've been waiting. For... <laughs> I don't know if we've got to fit all this in. But, um, so when I was Is it on Miss Tweedy's farm? Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's all about this couple, elderly <laughs> couple, making pies and chickens. No, my, um, my parents had a, a sort of weird, not weird, they had a sort of family commune, and my grandparents lived with us, and a couple of aunts and uncles. And, and out the back, there was a big vegetable patch cool. and chickens and things. But there was one chicken, which was a, a cockerel called Chanticleer, after, I think, a classic children's story of which I can't remember the title. Anyway, it was really, really aggressive, but did not like my grandpa at all. And I just remember him having to go out there with a spade to sort of batter the cockerel back, not to kill it, but just to keep it at bay, because wow. it would come flying at him in particular, whatever it was. But he'd fought in the First World War, so he was extremely... <laughs> so he uh, knew how to use a spade. He, he was definitely, <laughs> you know, he, he could defend himself, let's say. Oh. You know, a much decorated man. Oh. But uh, he, he kept the cockerel at bay. That's, that's what I mean. I think if you had two fields, one of them had that cockerel in, and one of them had a bunch of cows, mm. you, you're more likely to come out of the one with a cockerel with um, injury. <laughs> yeah, true. he's going to peck you. Worst he's more likely to peck experience. you they than kick, the cows are to... Cockles yeah, kick, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to stick up for the cows here. <laughs> yes, please stick up for the cows. This is all about... The whole programme is about sticking up for the cows. Sticking up for the cows. Well, if, we, if any listeners have uh, any stories of encounters with animals, benign or worryingly oh, aggressive, really it would be really good yeah. to hear them because yeah. we, we'll read them out in the podcast in later later episodes because they're, they're, they're just interesting it would be helpful to share share tales and how you got away and what you how you dealt with it anyway my email address editor at countryfile.com love to hear from you well you can find out loads more about all these tales in in peter bick's series of films there's four films isn't it annabelle it's four films but there's a bit of a catch oh yeah because um I think I might have mentioned that it's the pre-pre-pre-pre-premiere. Right. So actually, Peter doesn't know when these films are going to come out. Oh. But you can go on to Carbon Cowboys, his previous documentaries, which is the beginning of the whole thing, you know, and that in itself is also e equally interesting. So carboncowboys.com, this series we don't know because it's still being finalised. Nice. That's called Roots So Deep. That's it for this podcast. Join us again next week. We'll be out and about on another countryside adventure. But for now, it's goodbye from me and the team. <laughs>